Greetings, podcast listener. Welcome to Eat Half, Walk, Double. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. This show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports as a coach, race director, and athlete, told through the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Tom Raffio is my guest on this episode. He is one of the great business leaders in New England. As president and CEO of Northeast Delta Dental, he led his organization through the pandemic and not only weathered the storm, actually emerged stronger. He also happens to be a successful author. His third book, Prepare for Crisis, Plan to Thrive, is an excellent accounting of how his organization navigated the last two years of COVID-19. Tom cites resilience as one of the foundational elements of a strong business. Defined as the capacity of a dynamic system to adapt successfully to challenges that threaten the function, survival, or future development of the system, it's arguably a foundational element of athletic success as well. In a fascinating conversation about business and life, we talk about his take on how to build resilience, both individually and as an organization. We also talk a little bit about why running is so important. Well, without further delay, here he is, Tom Raphael. Hey, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Chris. Always great to talk with you. You're my, one of my favorites for sure. Well, I, I appreciate that. You know, I've, I've had the good fortune of being on your radio show a few times, so this is going to be a little different for us, uh, me asking you questions uh, for a change. Um, so I, I recently finished reading your third book, Prepare for Crisis, Plan to Thrive. I really think it's an excellent account of how Northeast Delta Dental uh, has weathered the storm uh, of COVID-19 and and actually, as we'll talk about in a little bit, actually emerged stronger than before. Um, you know, th- this was this was your third book, actually. Correct. Um, in 2014, uh, you co-authored a book with actually Celtics legend Dave Cowens, There Are No Do-Overs, The Big Red Factors for Sustaining a Business Long-Term. And then Mindfulness, A Better Me, A Better You, A Better World, published in 2018. Here's my question, though, Tom. So um, you obviously could not have foretold the pandemic prior to 2019. So I'm curious, what was your third book originally going to be? Well, my third book, great question, Chris, was going to be um, on running and intriguing and compelling Um famous and unknown people I've met at the starting line. That's now going to be my fourth book, um, as I've mentioned to you offline. So this third book really was fortuitous in the sense that I was keeping a journal. I'm a big historian. So uh, during during the pandemic early on, I was reading books like the Journal of the Plague Year, which was about the plague in in London by Daniel Defoe. Um, And I also read John Barry's book on the uh, pandemic of 1918, 1919, 1920. So I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. So we'll start uh, keeping a journal of what we're accomplishing at Northeast Delta Dental. Plus, as you know, having read the book, um, I was emailing all of my employees daily, um, as well as people that we had to furlough. And I was emailing my participating dentists weekly and our customers. So I really, I was really getting into the habit of communicating, communicating, communicating. And then someone said, well, why don't you write a book since you're 
take keeping a journal and I sort of scratched my head and said, sure. I mean, as you know, Chris, uh, during the early part of the pandemic, uh, we could do one of two things only. We could, uh, as you did, work out more in the woods and stuff or, <laughs> or sure. sit in front of your Zoom and computer all day, which unfortunately for a little while I was, I was doing that. So, so I put pen to paper um, and then I really tried to not only describe what we were accomplishing during the pandemic, but also some lessons learned because I believe that uh, the book now is being used in the community more as a handbook for how to prepare for the next crisis, which might be another pandemic. It might be the continuation of this one, but it might be more what I'm thinking is probably some macro, you know, cyber crisis. And so the book has turned into really a handbook for uh, uh, smaller employers and large employers who are trying to plan for the next inevitable crisis. Yeah, I mean, I, when I was when I was reading it, what what struck me was that you you essentially were leaving a breadcrumb trail for others to follow, <laughs> as you Absolutely. as you and, I, and we and, and I want New Hampshire businesses to succeed. And I, this gives me a quick moment to mention those of you that are listening, because I know Chris has a wide audience. That um, yes, you know we're a five hundred million dollar company and we have two hundred twenty five employees, but the principles of the Baldrige Performance Excellence Framework and these breadcrumbs, you know, that Chris just described can apply to, you know, companies of three people. So, for example, one of my uh, favorite places to stop after a road race in Manchester is Dancing Lion Chocolate right on Elm Street. Um, and they the proprietor, Richard, has about, uh, I don't know, three or four employees. Well, he's a huge believer in the Baldrige Performance Excellence Framework. So the whole point is he thrived during the pandemic as well. So. If you're reading the book or if you're hearing myself and Chris talk, it does apply, you know, to families. It does apply to if you're an individual consultant, if you have three employees or 300 or 3000. Yeah. And and uh, I, I would absolutely agree with that, e even for myself as a sole proprietor, um, th there were a number of really important takeaways uh, that 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 uh, that I sort of stored away um, for my own business. I, one other follow-up question as it relates to this book, um, be, because this book was so intimate and personal in that, you know, you were writing about, uh, you know, your, your, your organization and, and, and you were writing about your leadership uh, within that organization, in a sense, was this book easier to write than the other two or was it, was it infinitely more difficult? I'm curious about that. That is a tremendous question, which uh, I'm going to give you an, an oxymoron from for an answer. Because on the one hand, okay. since it was writing about, um, I felt like Daniel Defoe, you know, here we are, the, the plague and all this stuff. So it was about my journey, the company's journey. But I've learned, uh, having written the other two books, that um, people only read about um, 100 pages. So if you know, you read the book, so there's about 103 or so pages, and then there's an appendix of communication. So I had way more pages than that. So it actually took me longer to edit it down so that I could get people to read it. And the second thing um, is the last 10% um, of the book, um, the last 10%, I was pulling out my wiry hair because what was happening in the fall of 2021, you may remember, is there was the vaccine mandate uh, coming out from the president. 
Um, in New Hampshire, we also have a, a very unusual law which made, made it really more applicable to us. We had the Omicron variant, we had the Delta variant, unfortunate name for a variant, giving the name of my company, Delta Dental. That's very true. So I kept having to rewrite the ending. Um, so finally I said, well, I'll just have to say, well, what if it's not over? And so I was able to uh, finally close it. And the, other, and the other difficult thing about a story that involves so many of my own employees is it must be perfectly accurate. So when you read a book, you know, whether it's uh, a book that someone's speculating what was said behind closed doors in the White House or something like that, I mean, the person can extrapolate, can guess. But um, if I say that uh, Bonnie St. Lawrence was awesome doing the payroll from home, um, or if I say, you know, on March 16, 2020, when our sort of world all changed, that we're able to get people out of the office really quickly. You have to be perfectly accurate because employees are reading this. So um, the fact checking um, in the last 10% of the book was incredibly agonizing because I wanted it to be perfect. I didn't want anybody to say, well, you know, Tom exaggerated or it wasn't, it wasn't Bonnie, it was really Susie or Joe or something like that, um, which you probably can get away with if you're just writing a story and nobody read about it. So even though a lot of people nationally are reading this and they would know, I, I mean, all of our employees are reading this as part of uh, orientation for new employees and history as far as current employees, board members read it. So I would say that it was a fun, the, the first 90% was probably easier to write than the other two books. Um, the last 10% uh, was way more difficult because of the changing landscape of, uh, of the virus one and two, what was coming out of uh, Washington, D.C. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really interesting observation uh, in that um, you, you, you had a lot of uh, firsthand uh, accounts and firsthand experiences. The, these people lived through the pandemic. Your uh, your uh, your associates lived through the pandemic with you. And so uh, they were they would have read it with a much more much more critical eye You know, in, in the in the book, you list uh, 10 foundational elements of a strong business. Uh, and, and as a professional endurance coach, I would actually argue that number seven, uh, plan ahead for crisis, build resiliency, actually applies to endurance athletes. So I want to talk about this concept of, of resiliency. Um, Tom, how do you define resiliency? And then, and then as a follow-up question, um, what, what does resilience see mean or resilience mean for a business? Well, resiliency now is one of the key tenants that uh, employees of choice are looking for when you're hiring someone. You want someone to be able to um, look at continuous improvement um, as feedback is a gift, as I always say. So um, if someone says to you that you could do things a little differently to, you know, you know, take a minute off your half marathon time or improve our call center, um, you need to receive that information. So resiliency is that ability to, um, I think as you term, you like to say, you know, look at, you know, a little bit of failure as an opportunity um, to improve. So that's what we, that's what we're looking for. And then the other thing in the Mount Washington road race is coming up, as you know, as well as the loon race, one step in front of the other. So there were times during, uh, particularly in 2020, where, 
you know, I was dragging myself into the office. There was about 30 of us uh, that came in every day. We have 225 or so employees. The other 200 on day one pretty much were working from home. And to this day, most of them are still, you know, working virtually. But just being able to drag myself in the office, because obviously we're still getting some mail. Um, the mailroom needed to come in, the finance people to, you know, issue checks and so forth. So um, just one foot in front of the other. So I always look at, uh, that's why the, this, it's great that the podcast is, is this week, Chris, because with the Mount Washington road race and loom road races coming up, that really is the resiliency part of it. One foot in front of the other, continuing on, um, maintaining optimism. But the other part of resiliency is, is something that I call servant leadership or level five leadership. And that is, you also have to paint reality uh, for people. So early on in the pandemic, so my world without boring your audience, between March 16th of 2020 and May 11th of 2020, nobody was able to go to the dentist except for emergency. So guess what? That meant most of our employees didn't have a lot to do. So um, we had to furlough um, some of them. And so rather than sugarcoat it, I made it clear, you know, we're going to have to furlough some of you. We had a great VP of HR, Connie Rojakowski, who did all of the paperwork and all the calls and everything that needed to be done. But I painted the picture of reality, which was um, if we get the dentist back up and running, which we did help accomplish that on May 11th, all of you would come back. And that's what happened. So, so I didn't say, well, no one would be furloughed. I made it clear that there would be some furloughs. But um, if we continue to get the dentists back up and running through the grant money we gave them and everything else, that most of you, if not all of you, would be back on May 11th. So I think having a positive attitude, being optimistic, but also painting reality. I mean, I'm sure you know this, Chris. I mean, people can accept no. That's what people don't understand. People can accept no as long as you give them the truth. So it's so you, you got to balance that optimism with also painting the uh, proper picture of reality, taking continuous improvement feedback, um, and then just kind of again back to the running analogy, keep going one one foot at a time. And as you know, having done both those races, at some point that's all you're doing, but you can't stop. <laughs> yeah, well, I I think I think I think that's an excellent. Um, that resilience, uh, resiliency metaphor um, in terms of the Mount Washington Road Race and the Loon Mountain Race is a, is a is a great metaphor to think about in terms of business. Well, let let, let me ask a follow up to that. Um, I understand resilience and resiliency in in an individual because I you know, again I I think about this a lot um, in my in my own personal experience as an athlete like you and uh, and and my own professional experience as a as a professional endurance coach. But from an organizational level, is an organizational, uh, can an organization have resilience and resiliency? And is it just, uh, in fact, the, the, the collective resilience, uh, resiliency of the individuals? Or is, is, a, is an organizational level resilience or resiliency a little bit different? I think it's, it's, it's similar, but different in the sense that you have to have the the corporate structure in place. So our one of our secret sauces is we have great alignment between our board of governors. In our case, we call it, you know, board of directors or board of trustees and the senior leadership of the company. So um, when we were giving back 
$27 million in the community. I just can't write checks to dentists or to employers and give them premium relief. All that has to be approved by the board of directors and then, and then our regulators. So the fact that there was board management alignment that we all knew that this was the right thing to do, well, that was built up over 20 years of uh, you know, credible management performance. So the board of directors would trust me, hey, this is the right thing to do to give our dentists money so they can keep up and running between March 16th and May 11th. That would be good for the industry. And then giving and, um, and, and employers listening to this know this, but basically we didn't ask, we didn't collect premium, you know, for a month uh, so that you could continue the, um, the business. Um, and that was close to $19 million. But that all happens because of this sort of um, trust between uh, board and management. So you need to you need to do that from a resiliency perspective. You can't be resilient um, if you can't act on what you know what's right because you don't have permission to do it from your uh, from your board of directors. The other thing, and you you had mentioned this, and it's true, we did not obviously plan for COVID nineteen. You know, nobody did. But what we had done using the Baldrige Performance Excellence over. 10 to 15 years, we had a pandemic committee. So we were actually planning for some pandemic, not COVID-19. So we had built up our reserves knowing at some point that there might be a pandemic. And, and in our case, uh, you've been in our uh, campus area, but there's actually uh, train tracks that go right behind our building. Um, and we know dangerous cargo occasionally is in those trains. So we had planned for, let's say, that train exploded, you know, what would we do? So we had been doing all of this pandemic and disaster recovery testing for years and we built up our reserves. So when it actually happened on March 16th of 2020, we were able to roll with it. We had a plan of how to get people home quickly. Uh, we have a great uh, call center so people could take the customer service calls from home in a distributed way. All of that was part of planning over 10 years. So, um, small or large employers, I, I, I encourage people, plan, plan, plan. Even now, during the height of the pandemic, we've been doing other disaster recovery testing for the past two years, even though we're still in the middle of, we're not quite in the middle, but towards the end of the current crisis, we've got a plan for the next one. So plan, 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 communicate, communicate, communicate. And then if you're in a structure that has a board of directors, make sure that you're in, you're in alignment with them. Those are the three things that, you know, I, my takeaways, plan, communicate, um, and make sure you're in alignment with your board, if you have a board. Yeah, I think, I think it's difficult for, uh, for, for some businesses to um, spend time on something that perhaps doesn't um, affect the bottom line uh, directly. Like, like, in other words, spend time planning ahead. Um, <laughs> so how often, right, are, are, we, are we caught up in just getting through the moment, uh, you know, uh, meeting our financial objectives uh, and, uh, and, then, and then moving on to the next financial objective? And, and again, to your point, I think, I think resilience is something that is planned for, right? You can't, <laughs> once you're in the crisis, uh, it's kind of too late uh, to, to begin to, to put some of these structural things in place in terms of resilience and resiliency. It has to be something um, that is that is forethought, pre-thought. And, and again, I think that's the point of the of the title of your book, Prepare for Crisis. I mean, that's what essentially what you are telling people, Tom, is that now is the time to prepare for the next thing that comes down the line. Right. 
Exactly, because if that because when you're when you're ready, in our case, we have the financial reserves, the systems, the processes. You're able to. I know pivot is over years, but you're able to pivot much quicker, more quickly than another company that hadn't planned for it. Obviously, most companies eventually got their employees at home and things like that. But if you've planned for that, you can adapt that much more quickly. And then in our case, not only able to give back $27 million to the community, but also have a very successful year ourselves. And I, I, again, you said it well, if you plan, then you can thrive. You can actually thrive during the crisis um, and, and uh, sort of for, for a funny expression, you can more proactively react to what you have to do because you have the processes and reserves, financial reserves in place um, to be able to do that. And, and I will say this, because I agree with you, if you're trying to meet payroll, if you're fighting fires, if you have one or two employees, um, they're obviously, you know, there's only so many hours of the day, and I know we'll be getting to work family balance and stuff like that. So it's like, well, I can't really plan if I'm trying to make payroll from, you know, sweeping the floors or whatever. But if you if you carve out an hour a day to do that, even if you're a small employee, it, it will benefit you 20 fold when the next uh, crisis hits. Yeah, I think they they talk about time blocking and um, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I do think it's important for the for the long term sustainability of, e of every business or any business. Um, to have some some forward thinking planning, I many you know, obviously for the majority of the time you got to keep your head above above water. But but I, I do think it's 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 imperative to think ahead. Well, there are, experts believe Tom that there are four factors that affect uh, resilience, and interestingly enough, you've already mentioned two of them. But I I want to talk about how these these four um, apply to Northeast Delta Dental throughout the pandemic um, and and your take on them. So the so the four factors that affect resilience um, that most experts agree, and I, let me list them and then let's talk about them individually. Number one is a positive attitude. Number two is optimism. Number three is the ability to regulate emotions. And then number four, the ability to see setbacks as a form of helpful feedback. In fact, you, you've already actually alluded to three of those, those four, but let's start, let, let, let's take number one, uh, a, a positive attitude. Um, from an organizational standpoint, um, can an organization have a positive attitude? And if so, um, what, what's the, what's the driving force, uh, behind an organizational level attitude? An organization can definitely have a positive attitude. I know that, uh, the community out there, um, employers, uh, brokers, insurance brokers, um, our dentists, um, they were looking for signs from Delta Dental that the dental industry was going to continue. So I can't tell you the number of dentists that would email me. Thank you for, you know, having a positive outlook on the future. And again, as I mentioned earlier, you can't sugarcoat things. I mean, obviously for almost two months, whatever, March 11th through um, March 16th through May 11th, you know, dentists weren't uh, seeing patients, but I had a positive attitude and said, you will be back number one. And number two, uh, we were able to provide free personal protection equipment uh, to our dentists who at that time couldn't get a hold of you know, KN95 masks, N95 masks, gowns, nitro gloves, um, all forms of personal protection equipment or PPE that right now is more easily accessible, but then it wasn't. So I think having that attitude, I received so much feedback 
uh, from our dental community saying it was so good to know that you know our industry wasn't going to go away. And then from our own employees, you know, we did, as I mentioned, we did have to furlough some people, but they knew that they would be coming back and that our future would be bright once again. So I think that um, as long as you base it in reality, you a positive attitude can go a long way. And um, I think it made a huge difference um, keeping the, uh, the dental industry alive in New Hampshire, Maine and Vermont, our other two states. And, um, you know, not that I'm taking full credit for that. I'm not. There are many, many other people. But I think I was able to communicate with, with video, uh, with radio, with email communications, with written communications, so that they were getting a resounding, we'll be back. Um, and as you know, one of, the, uh, uh, one of the expressions you see a lot in sports is sometimes uh, the comeback is greater than the setback. And I would use that, uh, that expression a lot. And and then, of course, when it pans out, um, uh, it just reinforces, you know, the importance of that positive attitude. And I think, I think, <clears throat> number two, optimism is is uh, is intimately related to a positive attitude, but it's not always necessarily easy um, uh, to to see that there is um, that there is a way forward in the midst of a crisis. Um, in other words, having that kind of optimistic outlook that things will work out. I mean, there's, you know, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, there would have been, and there was no way for any of us to look into the future to see how this was going to turn out. This was obviously a, it was a novel virus. Um, it was really difficult for a lot of industries early on. Uh, and yet, and yet you, you had the ability, um, both as a, as a leader and, and as an organization to remain optimistic. How were you able to do that, Tom, early on in which, <laughs> you know, th this was a, a once in a generational thing. Uh, it, it really looked dire early on. How were you able to remain optimistic? That's a, that's a, that's a really great question. Well, I think candidly reading John Barry's book on um, the 1918, 1919 and 1920 pandemic gave me a sense. I realized this was a, not just as you said, this was a novel coronavirus. But back in 1918, 1919, 1920, uh, they were dealing, for example, with mass controversies. You know, instead of people fight, fighting on airplanes, they were fighting on streetcars about, about masks. Um, they were also dealing with, students of history know this, they were also dealing with World War I, uh, which the United States, you know, was about to enter. And they were also dealing with, fatigue of, oh my God, because COVID is going to last forever. Same thing back then. Um, you know, you, you remember this, Chris. Remember, well, we'll just shelter at home for two weeks, and then it became two months, and then literally it became two years almost in, in various stages, you know, of variance. So, uh, but having sort of read what happened uh, back 1918, 1919, and unfortunately, one of my national boards, we actually had a you know, John Barry presented. So sort of seeing that, um, not to get religious here, but this too shall pass, um, seeing that could have gave me hope, um, not hope, but really reality-based hope, you know, that we would in fact get through this. Now, I'll be the first to say, you know, as an insurance company, we have an advantage. We weren't a restaurant. So we could have most of our employees working from home and being as effective as ever. Obviously, um, 
you know, if you're running a restaurant and all the restaurant chains, you know, laying a lot of people off, you have to be there in person. So I also wanted to be uh, empathetic that not all of our employer, employer customers had the same advantages that we had, which was one, all the planning and reserve building we did. And two, as an industry, um, even though, believe it or not, as an insurance company, we were considered, you know, um, an essential employer. So I was able to, you know, drive into Concord with the 30 other other people, you know, no, no problem. But I think, I think knowing that while this was a novel coronavirus, that based on what happened back in 1918 and so forth, that we would, we would get through this. Um, and sure enough, we, we were seeing signs that we would get through it. Restaurants, you know, reopened up. Um, and the fact that we were helpful to our clients and they stayed with their dental insurance. Um, and then people, flocked in our case not to get too specific to delta dental but people flocked back to the dentist so i so, so i knew that people would start seeing that we could return to some degree of you know pre-covid normalcy we'll never go back to pre-covid and to some extent um, as, as you know um, um, some of the uh, innovations that occurred during COVID have made us um, a better society there are other things you know, I think isolation, you know, mental health, et cetera. There are other things that are, you know, exacerbated during COVID. But I think um, some of the innovations that have, that have occurred during COVID has been really helpful. And, and and I know you've gone to the dentist since COVID, but I just use it again for my industry. It's more efficient than ever. When I used to go before, the, before COVID, I was constantly waiting in the waiting room. <laughs> now you go in, you're out. They know how to deal with infection control. They've been dealing with that since HIV. Um, so my role was to really comfort the community. Hey, it is in fact safe, you know, to go to go back to the dentist. So I think, um, you know, as long as optimism um, is based um, on reality, then um, it, it can really help buoy the, the community. Um, and I, I have a stack and that's actually part of the appendix in the book, but I have a, a stack of thank yous from people from not only the financial relief, um, but also just the fact that uh, I was like a, a voice for them and they loved the getting their daily emails, their weekly emails. And one of the things I fell into and you saw in the book, one of my early emails, I started to include family stuff, you know, pictures of my granddaughter who's living with us or a cat you know, walking over my uh, keyboard. And so it became, it became calming for people. Hey, I'm working from home. I'm distracted by my kids who aren't at school or my pet that's walking on my keyboard, but that's okay. You know, that, it, that, you know, as a leader, I'm a, that I'm, that's, I'm faced with that. So therefore it's okay. So that sort of sense of that it's okay, that this is new for everyone else really, really comforted people at a time when I'm not a lot of was known about the coronavirus. The, the book, I think, does a really good job of <clears throat> of chronicling uh, your communication um, with your um, with the folks that work for you, uh, and also the, the the folks that are associated with the with the organization as well. And and um, you know this this idea of a um, uh, of a of a calming influence. Um, uh, it really, really sort of, uh, it, it rang, it rang 
true in the book. And, that, and I think that that kind of gets to, to the third point, which was the the ability to regulate emotions, to kind of have this sort of even keel as it relates to things. I'm sure that at times internally you had you had personal and professional highs and lows. And yet and yet what you presented out there in terms of your communication really was this kind of calming, steady, you know, even keeled approach. Um, it, did you think about that, uh, Tom, as you as you were crafting uh, the the messaging that was that was coming from leadership? It's a great question, and I, and I did, and here's why: because one one of our uh, customer service reps, a gentleman by the name of Ed Heath, uh, who's been working from home really um, for the last couple of years, early on in response to one of my emails, and he was at that point furloughed. So I had a uh, messaging going out to fur furloughed employees and messaging to uh, current employees. He said, you know, what what really helped me was the calm approach that you took. So that kind of reinforced to me, on the one hand, I, you know, I wanted to be optimistic and realistic, but I needed to have sort of a calming influence that things would be okay. And you know, when you're furloughed, um, and even though I was saying you'd be back, and if you're the primary breadwinner um, in your company, and I, I, I recognize you know, there was unemployment, it's scary. So uh, you, people needed to hear, you know, this kind of calming approach. And uh, early on, I learned that from Ed. Um, and so I always remembered that. And yeah, it, you know, internally, I, you know, I had highs and lows. One of the, one of the things that I did uh, necessarily and later regretted it really from March 16th to about June, um, I basically was sitting at the computer all day um, and doing Zooms and emails, all these communications, you know, that uh, that you're referencing, um, but also getting the approvals that I needed from my board of directors and regulators. So I needed I needed to do all that. But um, I stopped working out for like two or three months. And then and so then then I started to realize, oh, my God, I needed I need to get back into a workout you know regimen of course this is your field so you know I mean you you you, you can work as a, as I've done you know for 50 years to st stay in shape and it seems like in 5 weeks you can get out of shape <laughs> that's it's so, so very and, true yes the, it's then, called uh, the principle of reversibility yes yeah, so and then I was uh, um, and then because of the intensity of zooms and emails um, then I was starting to get like vertigo and and then I started to realize you know some of the things you and I've chatted about in the past as a as a trainer you, you've uh, you know trained my wife Ellen who by the way is doing terrific you know she did Boston and five days later the big sir so I do yes <laughs> so amazing uh, thank you for all of the help and all the people you've trained over the years but then, then so I had to relearn that lesson that hey I'm not going to be good to anybody um, if, if, you know, if I'm lying on my, uh, couch because I have vertigo. So I got back into, uh, into running. I got back into, I started to do, uh, you know, orange theory, um, and so forth. And, um, and we were fortunate as you know, and I actually referenced it in the book, how blessed we were in New Hampshire to have a running community in 2020, because most other states, 
um, basically all running events basically ceased, you know, from March 2020 to way into 2021, whereas um, the governor, we had a very uh, cooperative governor's task force and, um, and Millennium Running really helped with some of the protocols. So running in 2020 became like lining up for a Southwest airline flight you know, everybody's, you know, 10 feet apart with masks. And then you got to the, uh, to, to the starting line. Um, and so um, I write about that because that, that was important because once I got back into the, uh, into the running community, I, I, I got myself physically uh, fit again. And then um, I became, I think, an even better communicator because I really then emphasized to uh, uh, my own employees that, you know, create those, continue those healthy habits that we did, had done before COVID. We, as you know, um, with our company culture, we have running groups, walking groups. Pre-COVID, we had on-site aerobics, on-site yoga. We have fresh fruit everywhere. We did all that stuff. And some of that, you know, we put on hold, you know, during the, the pandemic. So it took me about two or three months to say, wait a second, um, I need to get back to that because, you know, if I'm if I'm debilitated because of uh, you know, headaches um, or vertigo, then I'm not gonna be able to you know perform the rest of my responsibilities. So so that was a lesson I had to relearn. You know during uh, you know during COVID. Yeah, and I and I think I I think that what, what you described very aptly the you know that 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 fourth factor that affects resilience, uh, and that's that the ability to see setbacks as a as a form of of helpful feedback, um, you know that 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 the the story and, and you tell it really well in the book about <clears throat> finding yourself sitting in front of Zoom meetings for hours and hours and hours and 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 realizing at some point um, that your that your own attention to health and wellness um, you had uh, you had uh, relegated to uh, you know to a secondary or tertiary priority and and it eventually did catch up with you but. Uh, rather than get stuck in that cycle, um, you got yourself back out there and uh, and started to get uh, engaged uh, in, in 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 fitness and running again. Which which I want to I, I want to pick up on that uh, now. So for me, both both professionally and personally, I I think about building resiliency in five ways, and I want you to speak a little bit about about how these uh, pertain to Northeast Delta Dental because I, you, you do talk about many of these in the book. The, the first way I think that you build is to have a vivid, compelling vision of what you want and where you right? This aspirational vision. Um, and oftentimes this means living to your values. I like, I like that, that phrase of living to your values. Um, how getting through and going through the pandemic how and why was it important for Northeast Delta Dental to have a vivid, compelling uh, organizational vision? That again is uh, I love I love I love you, Chris, and I love these podcasts because that's like a um, another sort of secret sauce. Um, and I write about this in the book. You have to have you have to be true to your your values, your vision. So our overall mission statement is everybody deserves a healthy smile. So that means not only people with traditional dental insurance, and so we gave back uh, premium relief so people could continue to have their coverage, and that included people that were laid off, and we got a hold of all these people that were laid off through one of our subsidiaries. So $100 premium relief 
for someone that was laid off was just as big as a you know fifteen thousand dollar july holiday premium relief for, for for an employer so by having that value everything we did was focused on making sure that um everybody in the dental community was was whole and then the other part of our vision is connecting overall wellness um, and oral health so all of these sponsorships that we do it's not about corporate flattery may i mention the mount washington road race for example you know a lot of those funds end up at the coas county family health services so people in the north country with who are underserved with regard to uh, um, with with dental health so having that overall vision really inspired all of our employees because we wanted people to go back to the dentist and we know if we know we knew that if we didn't do our job that the people would not go back to the dentist people would know that it was safe to go back to the dentist people couldn't afford to go back to the dentist but if we did our job um, people would be able to go back to the dentist and then keep all of these events going so we 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 were true to all of our sponsorships. So so many 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 events in 2020, uh, not just running events, but other things that we sponsored, were canceled. But we we had the organization keep the monies that we gave them, uh, because we basically told them, you know, we know you're trying to navigate the pandemic. So right be right before the egg hit the fan on March 16th of 2020, we actually had almost regular board meetings on March 12th and 13th. And one of those meetings was a foundation meeting where we gave out like $500,000 worth of grants. Well, that following week, tell you how things changed so quickly. So, so two or three days later, the world has changed. We called all of those organizations and we said, you know, we gave you all this money. We now you know, obviously with everything that's going on, the announcements from the CDC, et cetera, you can keep the money. You don't have to use it for what we originally, uh, what you originally applied for. Use it, you know, to uh, to stay in business. So, just having that that value of giving back to the community, connecting oral health uh, with overall health, um, and also that everybody, not just people that can afford it, but everybody deserves a healthy smile, really energized, you know, the, the company. So, yeah, I think you can definitely have a corporate vision that will help help you one be resilient but two really get you energized you know to uh, you know to do great things it reminds me of uh, of a concept that I talked about with uh, uh, with another with another guest recently this idea of thinking big but acting small um, the, the second way I think that you that you build resilience uh, is to nurture close relationships you know to seek out support. In the book, you talk about virtual talks around the water cooler. Um, I'm curious if if you if you uh, now see um, that uh, these virtual talks around the water cooler were a way to nurture close relationships, uh, and and then and then you know how else was Northeast Delta Dental uh, building relationships throughout the pandemic? Well, as you know, um, Steve Covey says you know the the speed of business transaction is expedited when there's trust, um, the speed of trust. And so our, I wanna, again, one of our other secret sauces is that uh, 225 employees, I know them all, they know me, they, I trust them, they, they trust me. I mentioned earlier, you know, our, our board of directors, we all trust each other. 
So those types of uh, close relationships make us a very efficient you know, and effective organization. So when we continued our all employees meetings, you know, once most people were working from home, they were in a format obviously of Zoom, but it was almost like they were in my living room um, because I know, I, you know, I know them all. So I'm looking at them. It's almost like they're sitting beside, beside me. So we were able to continue those types of uh, um, close relationships to this day. Now, what I worry about, of course, um, during the pandemic, we've, you know, we've hired now like we six or seven people. We, we didn't lose anybody. I, I know there's a uh, workforce shortage and so forth um, in, in general, and I'm not here to sort of brag about Northeast Delta Dental, but we basically, as an employer of choice, we have people that, you know, we, we, we don't have the few positions we have open, we fill and people stay for a long time and we augment the veteran employees, you know, with, uh, with newer colleagues. So I know all these people. However, what I, what I'm worrying about, you know, is like five years from now. So there's five or six people that we've hired during the pandemic. I have literally only met them in, in the, uh, the parking lot and their first day, even if they're working virtually, they come in, they pick up, um, the crisis book. They pick up my other two books as part of the orientation. I meet them, but then I really, I really don't see them in, t uh, in person again. Um, I see them on the, uh, you know, on the next Zoom. So, so currently these close relationships um, are so important. But what I'm worrying about is like five years from now, because yes, we we do do the virtual wallet water cooler talks, and um, and you have to be really um, this intentional now about a water cooler talk. Um, in pre-pandemic, um, my office, uh, I don't have a corner office. It's actually in the middle of one of our buildings. So people used to just walk through to get from one side of the building to the other. They would stick their head in. I would ask them how they're doing. They would ask me about strategies. So those things haven't really occurred um, except for the 30 out of the 225 people that are there. So that's why we have these more intentional, you know, water cooler talks. But of course, that has to be um, planned. Uh, you, you don't have the impromptu just, you know, gee, it's great that the Celtics won last night. And then we segue into business. Well, that doesn't happen when it's sort of a staged water cooler talk. So we are doing that. Um, I think it's been helpful. Um, it is not as organic um, as a real water cooler talk. And of course, we're using water cooler loosely. It's just basically around coffee. It could just be running into people. Well, um, that doesn't happen, obviously, if you're working virtually. So you do have to be, you know, be intentional about it. It works. It's not as effective. So, um, you know, I'm thinking out, you know, like five years when we now have, let's say, maybe 30 people who I don't know as well. How will that affect the, you know, the, the corporate culture of the company? Because again, we have so much trust in the company and that's why we deliver such great external service. Do you know, Chris, like during the pandemic, our call statistics, like we answered with a human being, no navigation within 20 seconds, you got a human being um, who was smiling on the other end of the phone, answering your question. I mean, I know, I don't know about you, but, when I've tried during the pandemic to call, you know, you know, a bank, a utility, another insurance company, like if I get a human being, 
you know, it's like, you know, whatever, 25 minutes later. Um, and whereas ours is just, you know, the opposite. We actually, our statistics actually improved as documented in the book. But that's part of that is because of all the, the trust and so forth. So, so that close relationships definitely helps your external service. And I just worry about five years from now because, you know, there will be some employees that will continue to work virtually. We've given them the option. I just want to make sure that we can sustain those close relationships. As far as the external world, as you know, oh my God, the people that I've met through the running community, as well as, um, you know, these other things that I get involved with. I don't know how I, I'm involved with this, but like I'm the chair of the New Hampshire Physics Committee for the Arts. And like, I'm like, I can't play a musical instrument. You know, I'm a jock. I can't, you know, I can't, I can't draw or I can't play a musical instrument, um, but I'm chair of the New Hampshire Committee for the Arts. So I, I've met so many cool people, like, you know, people that play in the Symphony New Hampshire that are just incredible people. I'm chair of the... Uh, arthritis foundation i've never had arthritis but i learned so much about people that and kids included that you know suffer you know from arthritis i'm i'm on the board of early learning new hampshire i know the importance of you know having you know child care which by the way is what creates some of the current workforce challenges because if you're if you're home with the kids you obviously can't go into the office so so all that stuff um that i'm involved with enables me to establish these really close relationships so I'm, I'm so much more knowledgeable about things like the importance of child care of the arts um you know that most you know a lot of jocks don't really you know maybe they'll go to a show or something like that but i now see that arts is just just as important as you and i you know in our in our athletics and the the first flautist is equally compelling as an athlete as you and Joe Gray, just in, in, in a different way. So those types of relationships um, uh, are really important for me to understand, you know, uh, community and, you know, and how we can hopefully help with uh, human civility. I think that's the first time that my name and <clears throat> Joe Gray's name has been mentioned in the same sentence. So I, I, I thank you for that. Well, no, I mean, you, you, the way you ran the last, the last uh, was it race to the top of Vermont, you were, you were incredible. And I've got, by the way, Joe Gray is coming to Mount Washington coming up. And, uh, right. and the week after, there's a new race that Ellen got me involved with, race the cog. You somehow race the cog uh, train um, and uh, kind of, arm twisted and other ways incented Joe to come back a week later to do the, to do the clock. But again, but that's an example, you know, like Joseph Gray and like probably not everybody in your listening audience knows who he is, but like, he's like one of the, the best mountain runners in the world. Um, he and is. without sort of the sponsorships that we've done, I mean, I would know, you know, all the terrific things he's done as well in terms of not just from an athletic perspective, but also, you know, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, the same way you and Paul Kirsch really were able to get some gender balance into mountain running. For the listening audience, for a long time, it was mostly men. Now it's like half and half. Well, you know, Joseph is also trying to get, you know, more African-Americans involved with the, you know, with the, with the sport of running. So all of these connections happen uh, because of, you know, nurturing those, you know, those relationships. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that, with that more. Um, 
and I, I want to pick up on 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 something that that you mentioned as well. This and it kind of leads me to the uh, to the, uh, the, uh, the the third way that resilience uh, is is built, and that's focusing on what you can control. Um, how, how do, as a as a as a business leader, uh, how do you not get distracted by things outside of your control? I mean, how do you how do you stay on point? How do you stay on vision? Is it a conscious thing that you do, Tom? Do you find yourself sometimes getting distracted by things that you can't control? How, how do you stay on task? Another great question. That's why I love your podcast. It's a variation of what you said earlier about thinking big and acting small. So it's a, a truly a variation, uh, variation of that. So I definitely pay attention as to what's going on in Concord. And I definitely pay attention in terms of what's going in Washington, D.C. But I use my personal sweat equity and my corporate resources um, that I have at my disposal as CEO to work on things in my control. And a great example of that is veterans rural health care. So about seven or eight years ago, um, I found out that uh, if a veteran and of course, we don't take care of our veterans. As, as much as we should, the very, as you know, a very small percentage of people actually serve our country and we should do more for them. But in any event, um, so a veteran who goes to the VA, um, not because of the great people at the VA, but just because of congressional and federal rules, nine times out of 10, um, they can't get their oral health needs met because you would have to prove that you were either a POW, um, were fully disabled or um, just got out in the last year. So uh, seven or eight years ago, I learned that uh, all of these veterans with oral health pain weren't being treated. So once I confirmed that that was indeed true, and it was, so um, I did you know, make sure that our federal delegation knew about this, so hopefully they can change those rules at some point. And our federal delegation is you know, really in tune to this, and they understand it, but it doesn't seem like Congress is going to move quickly on this. So what I did was um, I got our board of directors to establish a fund, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year um, and a group of dentists who have um, served our country. And we created this mini network of dentists who would take care of our veterans. So we pay um, these dentists on a discounted basis to conserve the funds. And literally, um, I'm pretty hands on and talking to the veteran, setting them up. Um, and, and, and then getting their, uh, their needs met from an oral health perspective. And as you know, Chris, if you have infections and so forth, it creates all this other systemic issues and so forth. So, so, so the analogy is um, what we, you need to sort of know what's going on in the world uh, because like if I, if I didn't know that there were these VA restrictions, then I couldn't act on it. But once I knew that, then I don't worry about it anymore. What can I do, Tom Raffi? So I do two in that example. I talk to the veteran, I connect them with the dentist, and then I get my board of directors to establish a fund of about $200,000 a year. So so I think what I'm, I'm trying to live my life now that like that, which is sort of taking a little bit of news. Don't get, you know, obviously gun violence and everything can really drag you down, but do what I can do. Um, to affect change based on the resources. Another example of that is early learning. We don't pay our daycare centers enough, and there's a lot of things you know that the government needs to do. But there are other things Northeast Delta Dental can do. So 
I'm often I'm often on the speaking circuit talking about the importance of early learning and uh, we, we we recently gave a significant donation to early learning in New Hampshire to sort of help in the in that area. So whatever you can do, you may not have you may not have the ability to write a check, but you have your sweat equity. So so sort of pay attention to what's going on locally and nationally, but then discipline yourself to what can you do, person X, Tom Raffio, to affect change. And I gave two examples of that. And and actually when you do that, you actually a little less stressed about in terms of what's going on in the world. Because if you pick up, if you listen to news, whatever news you listen to, it, it can be a little bit um, depressing between, you know, COVID, gun violence, um, you know, Afghanistan, name some topics, and but what can you do? And so I just feel better that I can actually use my sweat equity and corporate resources to affect change. And as you know, that's why we live in New Hampshire, Chris, too, because in New Hampshire, you can actually make change, you know. And I do think I, 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 I do think that that action uh, is a is a form of control and and uh, uh, and and when we feel as though we are in control uh, of of what is happening to us, I, I do feel that 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 brings some comfort. Well, n- number four is is to reframe negative thoughts. Uh, I, I like to use the expression to see challenge in every difficulty rather than difficulty in every challenge. Um, h- how do you reframe negative thoughts? I think what you said is like so right on target. Um, you know, the obvious, obvious, obviously, all the, we all face these challenges, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's a, uh, you know, a medical issue. When I've had uh, various medical issues over over time, um, and, and it's required me to, you know, get it, you know, you know, go to the doctor or regularly, or whatever. Like I look, I I reframe it as this is my road race. So several years ago, I totally ruptured my uh, quad tendon, and you know what that's like. Um, you know, you, that's what keeps your bottom of your leg and your top of your leg working together. So it was a huge long-term recovery including you know full-length cast so um when i started the rehab um, going to rehab not once not twice but five days a week that became my road race so i reframed the agony um, of rehab um, into a positivity because as you know and i think anybody listening to me knows i just love the the scene of, of, of of races and stuff and i it was instead of missing it which I did, but instead of like agonizing over it, um, I I used my trip to uh, PT as my road race. So I reframed that, and all of these you know challenges, you know whether it's you know uh, um, the the veteran situation, I always try to reframe it in terms of what I can do. So I think I think agree. If you can reframe a challenge, um, it makes it uh, it's much better for your mental health. So. By the end of use getting back to my medical situation, getting back to that quad tendon rehab, by the end of it, it was like I was I would look forward to rehab the same way I would look forward to a, a road race, and it definitely improved how quick, you know, I I got back. Um, it's the same injury, but the basketball fans might remember Victor Oladipo had, and how he was basically out for like right. you know a year and a half. And I'm not comparing myself to an NBA player, but but. But if you reframe it into something, getting back to the control thing, in my control, 
go to rehab, whatever. And so whatever, whether it's a personal challenge, um, family, medical, whether it's a corporate challenge, definitely re reframing um, a threat into a um, opportunity for improvement makes all, all the difference. And, and, and for my business colleagues, we all do these what are called SWOT analysis, Chris, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Um, and as everybody knows, when you put all those on whiteboards or flip charts or electronically now, there's the yin and the yang. You know, an external threat can be an external opportunity. An internal weakness can also be a strength, the yin and the yang. And I think if you reframe a threat into an opportunity and reframe a weakness into a strength, um, it, you can really, really enhance your personal performance as well as your corporate performance. I talk to my athletes a lot about um, positivity positively makes a difference. Right? So it's so incredibly important, not not only in athletics, but in in life as well. Well, n number five is 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 the one I, I really wanted to talk to you about. Uh, so the, the the fifth way in which uh, resiliency is built is through creating healthy habits around sleep, eating well, and something that's near and dear to my heart, exercise. Um, so, <laughs> and I know exercise is, is important to you, Tom. So um, tell me a little bit about uh, <laughs> you, you uh, and, and, and Ellen, I think are pretty famous in the, in the local road running scene uh, as, uh, as, as, as being out there and, and racing uh, nearly every weekend uh, that, uh, that, that spring, summer and fall racing is to be had. And, and uh, in, in some instances, racing through the winter as well. Um, why, why is exercise specifically, why is running important to you in terms of, in terms of uh, creating this and building these healthy habits? Well, well, wellness, uh, I mentioned earlier when I let that slide a little bit um, at the height of the pandemic early on in 2020, um, I realized uh, how much I missed exercise in terms of giving you that, you know, that positivity. And of course, um, if you're not well, if you suffer as a result of not exercising, you're, you cannot accomplish anything else you want to do. So exercising has been phenomenal. Um, I do the, the running. Um, I used to be, I used to be able to do, you know, like 20 and 21 and change in terms of 5Ks. I now basically do double that, but I like it just as much um, as one of my wonderful friends, um, uh, David Audet and others, uh, other much better runners have said, well, that means you're exercising more. So That's true. I, look, I look at it from that perspective, but we love the people. Um, it gets me away. It gets me away from uh, the computer that I'm on a lot. Um, I love the I love the running scene. Generally, uh, the funds go to a worthy cause. I use the Mount Washington examples, Coas County Dental Health Center. But even the smaller community races, usually there's a wonderful charity that the funds are going to gets you out there, um, and um, it's just part of a wellness culture and running scene. So. Um, I've been averaging, uh, I, I, I think I'm at, at 1,100 races. So I really got into this starting Amazing. in 2004. So between 50 and 100 races a year, um, it's been phenomenal. 
Um, again, I used to be relatively fast for an older person, but now I'm I'm extremely slow. But I have just just as much fun. But it's but it's just part of creating that that healthy lifestyle. And then, as mentioned, um, I've gotten into um, Orange Theory. Um, I want to make sure uh, I'm not promoting them, but basically, it's a one one really intense hat, you know, fun hour, you know, whatever, 25 minutes on the treadmill, 15 or so minutes on the rower and 15 to 20 minutes lifting weights and I'm done and they keep track of the, uh, of, of the metrics. So it's fun. And, and I can't imagine, you know, not exercising, um, um, you know, and again, but what we try to do with health and dental, we have walking groups. Many people can't run because of their knees or whatever. So we have, we have walking groups and I'm at the point now where speed walkers pass me. So, so I, I'm fine with all this. So uh, I know it's true. <laughs> um, I have done, um, I have done my Washington 10 times, Chris. So amazing. I've done it as quick as 150, usually around two hours. The last couple of years, um, I became a nervous wreck towards the end because I have this three hour and five minute cutoff. And I was like borderline on that. And I'm thinking, oh my God, like, There'll, no, there'll never be a record of me having done my 10th race, um, which, by the way, I learned, you know, and, and let me just a little bit of a side. I know this wasn't your question, but I've learned so much by being slower now because. Yeah, I've talk about that. that. There are people coming back from, you know, uh, obesity, people coming back from cancer, people. This is their first 5K. Um, they're they're a grandfather and they want to run with their grandson. and all the stuff that people talk the whole way. I'm thinking, you know, when you when you're when you're doing 20 and change, like you don't want to talk, right? Um, so so it so I've learned a lot. And so I in terms of our employees, we have created a culture where just about everybody is recording their exercise. We actually pay people to exercise, not that they do it for that reason. We record it, we give people all sorts of options. And so my my advice to the listening audience, um, if you're a runner, you know what I'm saying. It's, it's such a thrill meeting with people and, and post-race coffee, things like that, the camaraderie. And you know that everybody can put on a pair of shorts. And you know whether you're doing a 17-minute 5K or 27-minute 5K, or in my case now, a 37-minute 5K, you have the same level of pain as a Joseph Gray does, <laughs> just at it's a different very level. True. And so we all go, we all go through that. So it, it, it's fun, but if you'd rather walk, if you'd rather do aerobics, if you'd rather do, if you would uh, you know, rather do orange, but you need that exercise really um, to, I think, you know, lead a holistic life. And so you, you can, in fact, give back to the community. Where I need improvements on quite candidly is sleep. Um, um, I know that uh, you're probably going to ask about that. So for years, I was a five hour person, like, go to bed at midnight, get up at five. And the more reading I'm doing and the older I get, I'm thinking, oh my God, this is probably not healthy. So I've, uh, I've gotten now into more of a 10 p.m. to uh, maybe with the Celtics game is excluded, but I'm, I've now become a 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. person. So now I'm getting like seven hours of sleep. I still like to get up early because I like to do a very early morning workout uh, with a trainer or on my own spin. Um, and then do another workout at the end of the day to sort of uh, get my get my thoughts together, and then five minutes of mindfulness, and and then go home. But um, I'm preaching to the choir, I'm sure, with your audience. But those those health healthy habits you'll 
live longer, you'll live happier, and you'll be able to do more for the community if, if you know, if you're healthy and fit and feeling good about yourself. Yeah, I mean, don't you, don't you, don't you always feel that um, that you are the best version of yourself as a as a as a husband and a father and a business leader um, when you are taking care of yourself? Don't don't you feel that that's Absolutely. true? Absolutely, because you're 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 receiving people more generously. You're more patient. You're not displacing your frustration with yourself onto someone else. Um, so yeah, I mean, you're so much more generous in spirit. Um, you're so much more patient when there are problems, if you're feeling good about yourself and you're probably not feeling good about yourself unless you're exercising. So yeah, it all, true. It all yeah. kind of relates together. Don't, don't you also feel too, from a workforce standpoint, that employees who take care of themselves are more productive, perhaps less, less, less likely to take sick time. I mean, it, I'm, I'm sure you, you know, these, you know, these metrics and statistics as well as anyone that a, that a healthy workforce is a productive workforce. Do you believe that that's true? Oh, absolutely. And, and there's more and more data on this um, and that this the best correlation to, you know, what we're all paying as employers for, you know, group medical insurance for our employees. It doesn't always translate because someone can have a tragic accident and things like that. But but uh, definitely a healthier work style helps, uh, you know, medical costs. And then, as I already mentioned, um, you know, people say to me this all the time. Well, your customer service reps, you can almost feel the smile in their voice. And that's because they're feeling good because they've exercised. A lot of them are taking calls from home now. They've told me um, instead of now they don't have to drive to work, you know, that they're using that first hour in the morning to go for a nice long walk. They've lost weight. Um, they get on the phones at eight um, and they, they're feeling so much better. So it's also good for your uh, corporation. So all those things that we do, we're not running a country club I and mean, we have the free fruit and, all these exercise programs, but it's really about employees feeling good about themselves because that then translates same way I, as I described, it makes you more generous in spirit and more patient. It makes you a better customer service rep. It makes you a better underwriter um, when you're, when you're feeling good about yourself. Absolutely. Think, and as a practical true. matter, um, even if you don't maybe believe me on that, believe me, it definitely helps, you know, on, uh, on uh, medical rates for sure. So very, very true, Tom. This um, th this this conversation about your 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 book has been extraordinary. I I particularly appreciate the the emphasis on resilience and resiliency because I uh, I feel as though that uh, as much as it pertains to business and and business leaders, it also pertains to endurance athletes as well. I want to do one more thing uh, today, and and that's a little segment I like to a little fun segment I like to call three random questions. All right. So, um, but uh, before we do that, I, I need you to confirm to the audience that you have not received any of these questions in advance. Is that true? I absolutely have not received any of these these questions in advance. So okay. it's going to be right. extemporaneous. <laughs> by the way, Chris, while I while I have you, I mean, thank you for all you've done. You you've helped so many. Um, people from a humanistic perspective, from an athletic perspective, including, you know, my wife, she's catapulted her running to uh, the nth degree um, now. Um, when, when I met her, um, I was way faster than her. Now, of course, I've slowed down, but she's way better than me now. 
but a lot of that is some of the training you provided so thank you but also kind of the humanistic things you know that you've done because that's why i think that's why we all live in new hampshire because we can impact people so thank you and and as far as the book um just real quick i'm not plugging it other than to say if whether you're a family you're head of your family or uh, family business small it, it will apply um, any funds that we raise from the book go right back into the oral health for the underserved. So you, you can pick it up at Gibson's or the Bookery in Manchester, um, or you can get it on, on Amazon, but anything gets poured back into the community. So thanks, Chris, for that opportunity. Now I'm ready for your questions, which I have not heard before. I'll confirm. <laughs> Thank you for, for those kind words, Tom. Um, okay, random question number one for Tom Raffio. Tom, what was your favorite cartoon character or comic book as a kid? Fred Flintstone. I used to love, I don't know why, but I focused um, Yabba Dabba Do. I love that little expression. But the other thing was, for some reason, what fascinated me as a kid is he'd get into his, you know, prehistoric uh, car and his, and he had bare feet and he would uh, push the car via that way. For some reason, that, that intrigued me. Um, that it was pretty cool that, uh, you know, that uh, they were, that whoever thought that up, that, you know, their their bare feet. And sometimes, as you all know, in the audience, sometimes you do feel a little bit like Fred Flintstone when you're pedaling and not going anywhere. And that's why, you know, I think all of us uh, need someone like Chris, you know, you know, to push us because sometimes all of us, you know, get stuck in that. But the short answer is Fred Flintstone, and particularly when he jumped into his prehistoric car. That is that is phenomenal. That was also one of my favorites uh, as a kid as well. Tom, uh, random question number two. What's the most irrational superstition or fear you have? The most irrational superstitious fear, and, and, it, and it's relevant now because of the Celtics. Um, <laughs> um, I have to watch the game in a certain way and this was anytime a boston area sports team is in the playoffs and that was and we're lucky obviously living here we've had uh, you know four championships with the red sox six with the uh with the patriots and this century you know one with the celtics and one with the bruins but um, i have to watch um the playoffs in a certain way um and if i don't um, i'm always blaming myself when they lose <laughs> Which of course is totally, totally irrational. <laughs> but we all do. It. Come to find That's out, so true. many people do this. Like, you know, if you if you, if you ate, you know, an apple, you know, and uh, Tatum did a three pointer, then you're going to eat an apple the whole rest of the game. But but that definitely is uh, my irrational um, thing. And of course, it's very relevant, you know, with the Celtics needing to win two more games. That's very, that's very true. I mean, the last thing that any of us want is to be the reason why the Celtics do not hang another banner. Um, random question, final random question for Tom Raffio. Uh, this is actually one of my favorite questions. And it's, it's actually, I think, a, a rather difficult question, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Tom, you're having a barbecue and you can invite one VIP guest. Now, this guest can either be known or maybe you've never met. It could be someone uh, in the past or the present. It could be it could be real, someone real or fictional. Who would your one VIP guest be? I would uh, really like to invite Abraham Lincoln for a few reasons. Uh, 
also during the pandemic, there was a really great book on his leadership. And I would like to invite him for a couple of reasons. One, um, for that generation, he was tall, right? He was 6'4". So I right. would want to, and in those days when the average man was probably like 5'7", he was considered a giant. So I'd want to test out his height. But <laughs> I, I would also want to pick his brain on, like, what did he see? What, you know, why did he stick out his neck um, in terms of, you know, um, the slavery issue? Um, and it's obviously being, you know, rehashed in terms of, you know, well, he only liberated the slaves in the South, but not the North and all this stuff. And I just kind of would like to, uh, you know, pick his brain because he obviously took a huge uh, uh, leadership role in that whole thing. And with June 19th coming up, I think it's, you know, you know, pretty relevant, but he obviously did so much. And of course, then paid, paid with his life for it. So I'd like to kind of you know, pick, pick his brain as to what galvanized him. And then you talk about resiliency, Chris, earlier, people don't realize this, but for the most part, until he became president, he was pretty much a failure in politics and, and other things. Um, and then became this, you know, giant of a man figuratively and literally. And so I'd, I'd like to explore that with, uh, with Abe Lincoln. Yeah. And what an interesting parallel, right? Uh, the Civil War and the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and uh, thoughts around and questions around um, uh, how, you know, how Lincoln had prepared, um, had steeled himself. And so therefore the country to be able to uh, to be able to, to weather uh, this. I mean, uh, the Civil War was was, you know, by any definition, a crisis. Uh, and yet, um I think in 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 some ways uh, the country emerged stronger, although certainly is 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 arguable <laughs> that there are times in which our country feels as fractured nowadays uh, as it perhaps did at that time. Um, but but I, uh, I I would like to be invited as a as also as a guest, not a VIP guest at that barbecue, but I'd I'd love to be there as well. My dad, uh, who's a who's a Civil War buff and historian. Uh, my dad would like to be there too. So when you put that barbecue together, Tom, even though my dad and I are not VIPs, I'd like to be on that guest Absolutely. list. Absolutely. You'd be the first one I would invite. And and the other thing, if I can get a secondary guest, I'd like the uh, the president of Ukraine to come and also talk to me like how he kind of rose to the occasion. Because again, kind of like Lincoln, he was thought of as pretty much a uh, mediocre politician. Um, and then when the crisis began, he rose to the occasion. So I'd like both gentlemen to kind of discuss uh, what uh, prompted them, to, you know, to uh, rise to the occasion. So we'll get Zelensky, Lincoln, Chris and his dad together, and we'll have a little uh, chat about those questions. So, Chris, thank you for this uh, wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And um, I'm sure I'll see you uh, at Loon or some other place where we can uh, – do do some follow-up. Tom, thank you very much for being a guest. Thank you. One of the most important characteristics of resilient people is that they are great communicators. Tom referenced being a servant leader in the interview. He talks about that in his book. Servant leaders focus on the growth and well-being of their employees and other stakeholders in their organization. Tom shares over 30 pages worth of this leadership style in the form of correspondence in the communications appendix of the book. Well, if you liked what you heard, please consider giving the show a follow. 
And if you really liked what you heard, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn. So please make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.